And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The culture is the culture. It's four to six A to B, competitive excellence, and the brotherhood. Uh, the plan to win uh, has never changed. So the culture here and the plan to win is always going to be here at Ohio State. Welcome back to another episode of Four to Six with A and B, your Ohio State podcast on the Athletic. Bill Landis joined as always by Ari Wasserman out there in the beautiful Sonoran Sun. How's it going out there, Ari? I'm t- I'm tan. Really? Hit the pool this weekend for the first time. Uh, you know, just kind of. I think I got some nice, uh, nice color and feeling pretty good. Feeling uh, relaxed and uh, ready. I'm trying to picture you tanned. I don't know. I mean, you've seen me tanned. Have I? I mean, I went to Europe a few times and was in the sun for three weeks and came back. I'm sure you've seen me tan. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm having a hard time remembering what you look like. It's been so long since we've seen each other. Is that good or bad? You know, I got to tell you, I don't hate it. (laughs) <laughs> okay well thanks man well, well i guess you should just get going on uh continuing on in your podcast and let's not uh waste any more time wondering how each other are doing then okay <laughs> okay sounds great yeah uh i want to thank you guys for listening we did not have an episode uh last week i had some family stuff going on and it kind of interrupted our recording schedule so i want to thank you guys for sticking with us and being patient and thank ari and our producer john hayes as well for being patient with me as I tried to get some of that stuff figured out. But we're back for you this week. We're going to do a bunch of subscriber questions. And if you did not submit a question for this podcast, as always, you can get subscribed to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash 4-6. They'll get you 40% off. And while we're talking about uh, subscriptions, we ask you please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps us out as well. All right, Ari, let's get right into questions. First one's on about Justin Fields from Jordan W., Yes, that's while I understand that y'all aren't draft experts. Have you seen the early mock drafts and reports that Justin Fields may be the third ranked quarterback because he quote lacks arm strength and needs to read the field better? And then he asks, what's the likelihood Fields passes Trevor Lawrence or has the Lawrence hype train gotten too much steam? That question is in reference to uh, Matt Miller from Bleacher Report, who's an excellent draft analyst. Um, put out his big board. Justin Fields for 2021 was number 24 on his big board, which I think is probably a lot lower than anyone would expect Justin Fields. I think he was the third quarterback behind Trevor Lawrence and Trey Lance out of North Dakota State. Uh, Ari, what do you think of Justin Fields being viewed as the number three quarterback? And what do you think of the idea that, you know, maybe he doesn't have the arm strength or doesn't have the vision or isn't quite as polished as maybe he needs to be to be in the conversation we're talking about in terms of him being the top quarterback taken next year? Well, who's the who's the second ranked one? Trey Lance? From North Dakota State? Yeah, I think it's Trey Lance. So, um, 
we have a uh, fantasy football uh, situation here because this is very interesting. Bill and I are in a first-year developmental league, and you picked Trevor Lawrence first. I picked um, Justin Fields second, and I just thought that was a no-brainer. Um, and it's funny because we have written a lot about how athletically advanced Justin Fields is, and we've spoken to people who have been around him and other great quarterbacks um, through the camp circuit. And you know, we've asked this question on this podcast, Bill. Is it too soon to compare um, openly to Cam Newton, or um, does he still need more time to develop? And I think we both came to the conclusion that it's fair now. If people who coached him at the opening, who have coached all the other top five draft picks at that position, and they say he's the most advanced player, then he led his team in a first-year situation as a starter to the college football playoff um, and is athletically advanced the way he is, I think that it's a fair comparison, correct? Yes. Um, And if we're at that point right now, um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that draft um, breakdown or that report that Matt Miller put out. I think that um, he has tremendous arm strength, and I don't think we've even seen even 25% of what he's capable of as a runner um, because they hadn't needed to to use that aspect of his game. And I don't think he lacked vision at all. Um, In fact, what did he throw, two or three interceptions all year last year? And granted, a few came um, in the playoff um, game against Clemson, and one was at the end where it might have been a touchdown pass had Chris Olave made a different um, read. So to me, if you don't read the field well, doesn't that result more in in interceptions? And I just think that he's the most complete NFL prospect Ohio State has had um, at quarterback during my 10 years on this beat. And... I don't know that I've seen somebody who's athletically more gifted, and he's absolutely, like Mel, Mel Kuyper Jr. put him in a top five pick. I, that's exactly where I'd put him, too. So I don't really buy into that. That, and, and I'm open to the idea of criticizing and breaking down and overanalyzing somebody who's in his position because when you make um, comparisons to Cam Newton or you put somebody in the top five, then it's good to hear about their weaknesses. And you're more of a tactical uh, guy who studies film and like knows things then I'm very interested to hear what you have to say but I've always envisioned this season if and when it happens um, to be a Justin Fields versus Trevor Lawrence race to be the number one pick in the draft next year and that's just kind of the way that my mind has been framing this race um, I'm curious to hear what you have to say I mean I think that's what it is too and, and our draft analyst Dane Brugler at the Athletic I, I believe in his mock draft I don't know if he had Fields and Lawrence one two overall but he had them as as a top two quarterbacks and I think he had Trey Lance fairly high as well and like this is the position that Justin Fields is in like this is just how this goes and I don't have a great memory but I'm sure there are people poking holes in Dwayne Haskins in 2018 too when, when he was going through his season and he, he started to climb up the draft board a little bit that's what happens to these guys it happened to Trevor Lawrence at the beginning of last season when he was throwing a lot of interceptions and wasn't seeing the field all that well and was probably making some throws he shouldn't have made so Ohio State fans seem to get pretty upset at Matt Miller for what he said and I think he was just giving an honest evaluation I don't agree with it or I don't disagree with it um, totally I would not say that Justin Fields has a weak arm, and I don't think that's what Matt was saying. I think what he was saying was that Justin Fields needs to become a little more sophisticated in the way that he sees the field, which is true probably of any sophomore quarterback, and he doesn't have like a cannon attached to his arm that can help him overcompensate for mistakes that he might make when seeing the field. And I think the case in point you would point to when you talk about that is the interception he threw against Clemson in the Fiesta Bowl when he just didn't look off the safety. He thought that his receiver was open, and Isaiah Simmons 
immediately from the snap, darted to the sideline. Fields never saw him, and he threw a bad interception. It was of the three he threw all year. That was the only one that I thought was bad. The first one was like a botched kind of throwback sort of trick play that he was like off balance a little bit, and maybe he shouldn't have thrown it, but it wasn't like he made a bad read. He was just going where the design of the trick play was supposed to go. Uh, the second one was the Simmons one, and then the third one was when Chris Olave ended up breaking off of his route. Now, you could argue that he should have thrown the ball sooner, and the timing of that play was a little off. I think I'd agree with that too, but I still don't really put that on on Justin Fields having any sort of flaw. It was just a miscommunication between quarterback and receiver. Otherwise, he protected the ball really well. I went through and charted all of his throws, and we talked about this before. And I don't. I, I should have written this number down, and I didn't. I'm upset I didn't do it. But I wasn't sitting there watching him as he completed 70% of his passes, thinking, well, man, a lot of these balls are interceptable, and he just got lucky. Like they're, He was not putting the ball in dangerous positions. Now, the flip side of that is that a lot of those throws weren't maybe necessarily high-level throws, especially the beginning of the year. He wasn't working throwing the ball through windows. And I do think that there is a level of sophistication that Justin Fields can grow into as a passer, and I think he'd agree with that. I think Ryan Day would agree with that. And they've sort of been talking about that since the end of last season, how much Justin can, can sort of grow in the pocket. Um, he was really good, actually. His numbers as a pocket passer were awesome. I, th- I think Pro Football Focus had him as the highest-graded pocket passer last year. So it's not like he was bad, but there are just things you can do. Use your eyes to, to manipulate the safeties, anticipate things a little bit better maybe than he did over the first half of the season. Uh, but I thought, and as someone who was pretty close to it watching it all year, that he got better throughout the year. And I actually thought the Clemson game, that Simmons interception aside was like the best he played all year. And he was hurt when he did it. Um, he was really good. I, I thought he was pretty in command. He made some high level throws in that game uh, more consistently than I thought he had really throughout the entire season. And he did it all kind of on a bum leg when he didn't have the thing that makes him elite, elite his legs to, to sort of aid him in, in creating plays. So um, he's going to get poked and prodded. I don't disagree with the assessment. I think it's something that he can grow into and and ultimately get better at. And I still think people are going to fall in love with Trey Lance. I get it. He's at North Dakota State. It's a quarterback factory. He's similar in some ways to Justin Fields. If you watch him play, he didn't throw an interception last year. Um, They're the same age, just about. I get that why he would rise up the boards, but I I think you're kind of nuts if you don't think it's Fields and Lawrence and then everybody else right now. And I I just like – I am under the understanding that the NFL is all about like upside potential, and I think we're not giving Justin Fields enough credit just for his natural gifts athletically. I, I think that uh, even if he has some of these weaknesses, that, that he is the type of talent who's physically capable of doing things that most people aren't. That a, that a GM takes the risk on in the top five. Like I'd be shocked if he isn't at least a top ten pick next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would too. It's kind of interesting if you look at the way things are playing out and teams that might need quarterbacks. Like if Dwayne Haskins doesn't have a great year in Washington and Ron Rivera decides he wants to go get his own guy, like there's the potential for Justin Fields to be the guy who goes to Washington to supplant Dwayne Haskins, which would be nuts. Well, there's some I read something else too. Um, I'm learning a lot about the NFL uh, in our fantasy football draft where there's 50 rounds right now. Um, I don't know if you're learning a lot, but like I just realized too that Nick Vanette might be the reason why Jeff Hireman gets cut in Denver. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that's – I mean, there's a lot of Ohio State players in the NFL, so I guess it's bound to happen every now and then. But that kind of was what that reminded me of. And I thought that was an interesting little tidbit that I read this morning. It's a, it's a ruthless business, which I think goes back to the point of what Justin Fields is, is going to go through. Like, 
you, you just get torn apart every which way because people want to make sure that you're the guy. But but I oh, I do think now there's the huge elephant in the room that is what is next year going to look like and is he even going to have a season before he gets drafted? And maybe he won't. I don't know if he will or not. I, I still I still think that he'll have something to put on film after last season before he ultimately goes to the NFL. But everyone who watches him is going to is going to tear it apart. But I think in the end, once they do that and then put it all back together. They're going to fall in love with him because he is super athletic, like we said. I think he has the arm to make all the throws, even if you want to quibble about his overall arm strength and say that Lawrence has a stronger arm. I think I would agree with that Lawrence does have a stronger arm, but Fields' arm is plenty strong enough, and I think he's pretty smart. And I do he gets he gets knocked a little bit, I think, as a one read guy, which I suppose is fair if you just if you watch him in high school for sure. Um, and if you watch what he did over the beginning of last year, but I, I would say maybe if you're going to watch his film, I would start from the back and work your way forward or start from your back and work your way up to like the Penn state game, because I don't even know if the beginning of the year is worth watching because that was pretty easy pitch and catch for a guy playing against teams that were pretty well overmatched. Um, but I thought, you know, once Ohio State and the level got into the, the depth of the season and the level of competition ramped up, he rose to the occasion and didn't look out of place and was really good against Michigan playing hurt. Uh, was was okay against Wisconsin in the Big Ten Championship, but like I said, I thought he played his best game of the year against Clemson, even if they didn't win that game. Yeah, and that Michigan injury to field to touchdown pass was one of the most remarkable things I've seen in 10 years incredible. at Ohio State. It was incredible. Like, he has, uh, he has the it factor, uh, for sure, and like – I know people like wanted to um, kind of last week when we, or two weeks ago when we got into the Georgia discussion. Some people uh, thought that it was crazy for me to um, give Kirby Smart flack for not taking uh, Justin Fields, and then I was skeptical of his um, ability to translate right away to Ohio State and be a really great player. I knew he was going to put up stats, but to be as great as he was. And I was clearly very wrong about that. I mean, he was much better than I thought was even possible. And if he's getting the right coaching right now and is developing into a, a seasoned player, because there's only so much athleticism can do as a true sophomore, even one that is transferred. Um, I think that he has the potential to, by the time the year is over with, win the Heisman Trophy and be overall pick. I mean, I think that's certainly within the realm of possibility. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, looking back on it last year, it was sort of like the perfect scenario, not only because I think he and Ryan Day work well together and he was he was a fit for what they, do off, what they want to do offensively, but the way the schedule played out last year, like we kind of thought Cincinnati in the beginning of the year would be a test and they really weren't. Um, he had time to build into playing against tougher defense. Like if they would have somehow played Penn State in September – maybe we'd feel a little differently about Justin Fields or, or if they were playing Oregon at the beginning of last year as opposed to the beginning of this year, maybe he would have done some things that, that didn't look like a guy who was quite poised enough to win a game like that. But he had the opportunity to play, like I said, overmatched teams, look really good while doing it, and grow into the offense to where the time they got to playing those high-level defenses, he looked fairly comfortable. Um, the Penn State game was okay, but we, I thought he had moments in that game. But like I said, he, he really grew into it and got better as the year progressed. And like the crazy thing to me is – there's a, I think there's a lot left for him, I, I, and I think they would Day and, and Justin Fields would, would both agree with that assessment. Like he was awesome last year; he was a Heisman finalist. If you go by like efficiency, it was the best quarterback season Ohio State's ever had, even if it wasn't the most productive by yards and touchdowns. And he's coming back in theory with a lot of room to grow, and the, the possibilities of what what he could be as a junior or yeah, as a junior are, are pretty scary. All right, I agree. Question. Yeah, next, next question. 
Uh, recruiting question from Will W. He wrote a book. We love Will W. because he jumps into the questions and answers them for us before we get a chance to. But he also sent in a really good one that I was curious about your perspective on Ari as a guy who follows recruiting closely. So I shortened it. Here's here's the gist of what Will W. asked. Um, getting at the idea of using offers to determine recruiting rankings, like uh, Nick Saban, for instance, offering a three-star, then suddenly that kid becomes a four-star prospect. Uh, Will is asking, without camps, these recruiting camps, that happen throughout the summer, and even team camp team camps that recruiting writers can go to. Um, how accurate do you think the national rankings will be for the 2021 and, and maybe even more importantly the 2022 class? Um, is it possible that Ohio State's high ranking in 2021 is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that Ohio State offered these kids so they are ranked high because of that? Um, and then what advantage do you think this current climate gives to people who – might be really good evaluators, but don't have the cred to be the closers like a, like a Nick Saban, like an Urban Meyer, or like Ryan Day seems to be becoming. I think that there is a window of opportunity right now for those middle-tier teams in all the conferences. If you have a stud evaluator to go out there and get players, and you might not have the highest rating or ranking when this class is over with, but I think it's possible that there could be a class, maybe somebody like Luke Fickle at Cincinnati or somebody who – you know, isn't necessarily going head to head with the top dogs of college football for talent, but also has a very keen eye for finding it. And then you might look back at their class four years from now and say, "Holy crap, that was a, a tremendous class." Um, because I do think that there is a potential um, for just misranking players because there is so much less information available. Um, I think people have to understand how much time and effort gets put into ranking these kids, and that's why I'm such a stars matter person. It's not just like it was in 2000 when people put a, together lists based on film that they saw on VHS or DVD and like made these lists. I mean, there are hundreds of reporters across the country going to camps all over the country, um, watching these kids in person, breaking down their ability athletically and ranking them. And you have three major services, hundreds of reporters doing this and coaches and all. I mean, it's a huge business. Um, and now if you take away the entire summer camp circuit, um, you're now left with a bunch less information and people are going to have to be reliant on their ability to break down film like they did back in the 2000s. Um, so I do think that there's a chance for somebody who is very good at breaking down film or spotting diamonds in the rough to be able to spot that diamond in the rough and get away with signing him before his ranking changes because it's not going to change because there's no camps. But what I think this means for Ohio State isn't necessarily as much as it might mean for a place like Kentucky, for instance, who who has done a pretty good job of coming into Ohio and you know the Midwest and, and taking kids that are under the radar. I think the easiest thing to do in this business is to rank the top 100 players in the country. Um, and Ohio State's class um, has, what, 11 or 12 of them right now? I think 11. Yeah, 11. Um, so the top of the top are the easiest ones to spot. Like everybody has known since the beginning of time that Jack Sawyer was a top five player because of his athletic makeup, his physical dominance, and like his measurables. And like, I do think that there is something to be said about how recruiting rankings change based on the types of offers kids are getting. I understand the Nick Saban angle to this, and I understand, um, you know, how much copycat recruiting goes on where a coach um, offers somebody and then they'll get a bunch of other offers just because that coach offered him. All that stuff does happen. Ohio State players have in the past moved up in the rankings because they got an Ohio State offer and the people who are breaking these kids don't respect the opinions of a guy like Urban Meyer or Nick Saban. That is absolutely true. But when you look at the actual pool of talent, for the most part, that Ohio State's recruiting from, um, 
Ohio State is like kind of just operating on a different playing field right now than most of the country. And so is Alabama. Not so much in this class because they only have a few commitments, but Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, um, you know, the top five teams in America that, you know, Georgia, Texas A&M, all these, these teams that are, are consistently recruiting at the highest level are all coming from the same pool of players that are can't miss, like Corey Foreman, um, Jack Sawyer, Caleb Williams, Tony Grimes, Amika Buka, Terrence Lewis. I mean, these kids in the top 10 are, like, without a doubt, the best players in high school football. I think it's more in the range of the 250 through 500 players where there's a lot of room to be made up. And, you know, there's a lot of three-star prospects that could potentially be four-stars. But when you start talking about five-star prospects, the ones that are really the top 35 players in the country, I think they separate themselves because of how physically advanced they are and how good they are. So for a place like Ohio State, I think you take that ranking and you feel good about it. Um, But if you're a a place that has um, a lot of confidence in your coach, maybe a a team that has committed, um, has done, like Michigan State is the perfect example. Like if, if Mel Tucker is really good at analyzing talent and you know knows what he's doing and can spot the diamonds in the rough the way Mark Antonio did before the downfall at Michigan State like Michigan State could sign a class this year while the rankings are off a little bit that is going to put them on the same playing field that maybe they were in 2015 when they played Ohio State like I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility so um, definitely a great question but I do think that you should feel good about what Ohio State has done I don't think that their benefit of the doubt factor is the reason why they're signing such a crazy class, but I do think that some middle-tier programs in the Big Ten could use this window of an opportunity to kind of sign a class that maybe they wouldn't otherwise if the recruiting services were, were operating at full go. One of the things that I find interesting in this current climate that we're in is, is the idea of, like, say, you're, say you are Luke Fickle or you're Boise State or you're Memphis, like these, these group of five schools or even some lower-tier Power Five programs – that have a reputation for being really good evaluators and finding diamonds in a rough like you're talking about, I almost wonder if at this point you'd be hesitant to make moves on those guys like and tip your hand. And I, I guess in the end, right. you, should, you should fall back on your own evaluations. But I, I think that it does happen around the country that if, if Luke Fickle is like going full bore after some three-star linebacker from Columbus – um, Ohio State might think like, oh, what's this about? Or even like Alabama. Or I just saw on, on Twitter like Corey Kiner's a uh, three-star, four-star running back from Roger Bacon High School in Ohio in Cincinnati, like just committed to LSU. And Cincinnati was, I think, in play for him. And like Michigan was – like a lot of Midwest schools were in play for him because I think they were more familiar with him. And then he gets offered by LSU in March, and now he's committed to LSU. And I'm not saying that he that LSU got him because they want full bore after they realize that this kid might be a good player based on other people's evaluations. But I wonder if that might happen and if you are in the position of the evaluator finding these gems, if you might pull back a little bit on that because you don't want to lose these guys to bigger programs but you're essentially doing the work for them. Right, right, and I think that that's that's the case every year, no matter what. Um, and like, I don't know if Corey Kiner is the same is that is that perfect example there because he's like the number ten running back in the nation. Um, yeah, he's a little higher ranked, but he's, I, uh, and he's I, and number twenty running back, number one sixty three overall player. Number twenty. I, I was looking at two different things. He's number ten composite uh, running back and number one sixty three overall. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. So ten overall. And the only way Cincinnati ever gets that kid is if they offer him when he's a freshman and bang away for four years recruiting him and, and trying to keep him home. And I just think that the hardest thing to be in the college football food chain is in the middle of of the food chain where um, a team can come in and swipe that running back um, whenever they want. Um, 
even though you did the evaluation and the hard work. I, I think that, you know, the idea of do you wait and not tip your hand is an impossible thing for a school like Cincinnati to do because waiting is disrespectful, you know? And yeah. I, these kids care more about timing of offer and believing in them a lot more than people think they do. So um, I think that's just life in the big city, as Urban Meyer used to say, right? You kind of <laughs> go as much as you as you can, and if that happens, it happens. Because, like, what happens if um, Henderson decommits from Ohio State? And this is a completely made-up scenario, but bear with me. The first thing Ohio State's probably going to do is go all in on Kiner. And, like, he's committed to LSU, and maybe he will end up at LSU no matter what. But if Ohio State needed another running back late in the class, like, they would go all in on this kid and then maybe could flip him. And, like, LSU is the defending national champions, and I would say that that would be a very unpleasant experience for LSU no matter what because this is an Ohio kid who is getting an offer from Ohio State and, from my understanding, didn't have a committable one from Ohio State considering they were already full. But that's the way it works for everybody, even the defending national champions, not based on geography and stuff. So, like, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I think it just sucks to be like even Kentucky, where if you have a um, prospect that you really like and have had committed for a year, and then that kid is from Euclid, Ohio, and then Ohio State all of a sudden needs that person, and then he flips to Ohio State, that's just a really terrible position to be in. But I think you you recruit the kids that you love as hard as you can. You try to sell the fact that they were the first ones there, and you just kind of you know hunker down and hope that that doesn't happen because I don't think there's any way to avoid it. And you know the fact too is that you you got to understand, uh, not you but just in general, that everybody um, has really good recruiting departments and they're expanding more and more, and they've actually turned into like these mini NFL um, talent evaluation camps. And it's really kind of hard to be the only person in the world that sees somebody for who they are. Um, people slip through the cracks all the time, but it's not like Cincinnati is the only person that would be or only program that be able to identify Kiner or somebody like him as a really good player. So um, I think it's possible that a player that's ranked 250 should be ranked 100, and maybe a player like that goes to a place like Kentucky or um, Michigan State when otherwise if they were ranked 100, they might end up at Alabama, LSU, or Ohio State. I think that that could happen. But I just think you go all in on your guys and you hope to keep them in the long run, and that's the only real defense that the, the programs in the middle of the food chain have from that scenario. Really good question from from Will W. We appreciate it you was great. sending that one in. Yeah. Uh, next one, uh, two-parter from Sean P. Uh, we'll, we'll do the silly one first, and then we'll do the, his football one second. Uh, his, his first question was, what was your worst experience, uh, restaurant experience while out on the road? Do you want to go first or should I go first? My stories suck compares to yours, but do you, do you want me to fire people up and then use yours as comedic relief, or do you want to use your comedic relief and then I'll fire people up? Because like I, mine isn't a funny story. Mine fire is just, I think, I remember when you and I went to Penn State, I think it was 2016, and we stayed in, um, where do we stay? It was in the middle Altoona. of nowhere, Altoona, Pennsylvania, and I had never been to Permanti Brothers before. And there was a Primanti Brothers there. And after the Penn State game on Sunday, we went there on the way home, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And I was excited and pumped up to eat my first awesome Primanti Brothers Pennsylvania fry sandwich. You know, the whole thing. Because the concept is absolutely unbelievable. Delicious sandwich with French fries stacked on it. You know, you can give or take the coleslaw, but whatever. The concept is great. And I ate that thing, and it was terrible. <laughs> it had no flavor. The idea of it, um, wonderful idea, and it should be the greatest sandwich ever, and I just didn't taste any. 
anything. And I was like, okay, you know, we'll try this again some other time. I didn't want to give it completely an F and never go back. And then I went back again, um, and it was the same thing. So I'm on record right now saying that place sucks. And of all the places that I've been excited to eat um, on the road, and especially that place was the biggest letdown of maybe my entire life in terms of expectation versus reality. I don't know if it's gonna fire people up or not. Yeah, yeah. Permanis is pretty bad. I don't I don't like it either. Um I've had it I've had it there in Altoona. I've had it like four different spots in Pittsburgh, like including the original one, and it's just not it's not a good sandwich. For for what it is, for like as hyped up as it is, it's really not that good at all. So I agree with And you I've there. been told, Bill, that you have to go to the original one and the two experiences that I've had were not the original place. Um so I can like I can understand that if like the franchised one in Altoona, Pennsylvania isn't nearly as good as the one that is in downtown Pittsburgh. Like I could like buy that and try it again if that's really the fact. But the fact that you just said that the one in downtown sucks too makes me feel like the most overhyped sandwich in America. Yeah, it's all the same in my opinion, and it's not it's not particularly good. Um, I, did, I did go to Wapramani's one time that uh, had pizza, and the pizza is pretty good, which was surprising, but the sandwich is not good. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe we can get Best pizza Pennsylvania in Pennsylvania is at Ch- – it- is at Champs in State College. What's that oh, place State called? College. Yeah, Champs. I love There's that pizza. I'm, not, I'm just joking, but that that Champs pie is really, really good. Yeah, it was pretty good. All right, go um, ahead. My story worst, time. My, It's not that good of a story. It's just like a story about me totally misordering and, and ruining the no, experience. It's a good story. We were in a, it's a great we story. We were in... We went on our road trip when we were both working at Cleveland.com after the national championship, took us around the south, through some spots in Texas. We detoured into Galveston because we wanted to spend a night uh, by the water. So we were right there on the Gulf, found a nice cheap uh, hotel. And uh, we went out to a restaurant that was like sort of right near the pier. And I wanted seafood because I don't really eat seafood unless I can actually see the ocean, which might be kind of a strange thing, but that's just how I operate. And uh, I was looking at the menu, and for some reason I ordered flounder. I've never ordered it in my life, um, but I was expecting like a big uh, sort of just like a, a, a fillet of not a fillet of fish, but a fillet of fish. Um, to come well, that's your problem, it, Bill. Yeah, we should have just went to McDonald's. Uh, but instead, well, because like if you was, only eat fish, oh, go ahead. What came out was a fully intact flounder skin eyeballs, everything <laughs> on a plate with like some hush puppies on the side. And one, I would never eat that. Two, I had no idea how to attack it. Um, I don't remember what you got, but you beat me ordering whatever it was because you could eat whatever whatever it was you ordered. And I just sort of like pushed my the fish around the plate and then like covered it with a napkin and said I was done. And then I think I went uh, to a pizza place at eleven o'clock at night and ate a pizza in a parking lot, and that was my dining experience. But uh, you... be careful when you order flounder because it comes out basically alive. One, you don't have to see the ocean to have a. Wonderful fish experience. The filet fish is the perfect example of that. Um, You were absolutely mortified. That wasn't just like, I can't eat this. I'm putting my napkin over it. Let's go. Like You looked down at it, and the look of disgust and bewilderment and genuine shock was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a restaurant. Like you, you, There was no way you were even going to attempt to eat it. Like it was that you were so turned off by it. Like, and it you do eyeballs, that sometimes. Man. It had eyeballs. No, I know. I know. But you do this. I don't know if I'm making this up. You tell me if I'm making it up. But sometimes I feel like you are an adventurer 
and you order shit that you don't know what it is. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And maybe that's a cool feature. Maybe I'm more picky, but like at a place like that, man, fish and chips. I mean, we weren't at Mitchell's <laughs> at a steakhouse. I mean, we're at some, it was a second story shithole bar in Galveston, which isn't like the Mecca of seafood to begin with. Like it was just such an odd order. Um, and you know, again, maybe that's your thing. And sometimes you find awesome things that you wouldn't otherwise get, but like, I was in Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco and still ordered fish and chips because you know what you're getting with that. Like I kind of like going down the middle with with um, maybe not taking the risks. Um, I don't steal second a lot. I think you steal second more than I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm slow. I'm, but the problem is I'm slow and I don't have a great uh, get off time. So it, yeah, it doesn't really work out for me. But the funny thing is, is that when you started your story um, and you started bringing up the road trip after Dallas, I thought that was the second worst uh restaurant experience that you had on that trip and i think you forgot about what happened down in homa louisiana (laughs) i did forget about that this was one road trip guys we went from dallas after ohio state won the national championship in 2014 or it was the beginning of 2015 and we drove through houston and through the south and we stopped and did like a collection of um 20 or 30 or maybe even 40 recruiting stories on the way home and this was like a week and a half trip. And I will say that was probably one of the most gratifying things I've ever done professionally. Yeah. And, and for like, sure. if you go back and you look on, on the work at cleveland.com, like it was everything on that trip came up money. Like every interview we scheduled, everything we wanted, we wanted to write a story about Ohio State trying to recruit Louisiana and Les Miles walks out of an off. Like everything that we wanted to do worked out well. But Bill cannot say the same thing about his eating. Uh, regimen there. I, I, he we went to um, IHOP because we just had a day off or wanted to take a detour and we wanted to go down to the southernmost part of Louisiana. So we took a road trip to Homa, Louisiana, which is where I think they film Swamp People, and we just like wanted to kind of check it out a little bit. And I don't remember if I ate or not, but I I feel like I don't think I did. But Bill wanted to get pancakes on the way home because it was getting late and there was an IHOP there. Bill and what happened? Uh, we went to the AHA. We were, as far as I could tell, we were the only people in there. Apparently, there was a birthday party happening somewhere. I never saw it. But I ordered, uh, we drove past this IHOP on the way down, and I said, when we come back, I'm going to the IHOP because I want all you can eat pancakes because I have a very sophisticated palate. And we went there, and I ordered, uh, it's all you can eat. You're supposed to get like five at a time, I think. And the guy who was working there was clearly swamped. And I always try to be sympathetic to, to uh, servers in a restaurant because um, I, I have some understanding of how hard their job is. And it wasn't this guy's fault, whatever was happening in the kitchen. But anyway, I ordered all-you-can-eat pancakes. It takes like an hour for them to come out. And then when he brings them out, he just brought out one. And there was something on the plate that I don't actually think it was uh, fecal matter, but it certainly looked like it. It was probably just chocolate of some kind. But there was brown shit on the plate when he brought it out, like on the edge where he was holding the plate. And he put it down on the table and said, have at a boss. And I was like, "Uh, no, thank you. And that was the only time in my life that I've ever gotten up and walked out of a restaurant without paying for my food. I did pay for my coffee because I drank it. I left $2 on the table for my coffee, but I didn't pay for the food because I didn't touch it, and it may or may not have had a crap on it. Well, you also, we were sitting there without hesitation for an hour. Like, we, and like, we've had other IHOP experiences where it took forever, too, and I get more fired up than Bill. Um, where were we? We were in Maryland last year, and we were at an IHOP, and it took forever. But, um, 
he was getting increasingly more impatient as the time came. And, you know, all you can eat pancakes is just like, you think you sit down, It's we're in the IHOP, International House of Pancakes, you think it's just going to take a minute and then you can just go to town and then leave. And he was drinking his coffee and like without exaggeration, we were sitting there for a whole hour before we gave up. And finally, when this guy comes, he puts us, and it wasn't just one whole pancake. It was like the size of a silver dollar. It was like a tiny pancake. It wasn't even the normal size of the pancake, and it had this brown shit on it. And Bill was just like, that's it. We're out of here. And he like lost his temper. But like the man is still so you're for as condescending and kind of an asshole as you can be on this podcast. I don't think people realize like how sweet of a man you actually are. Like, and I was just like, you're not paying for anything. Let's just get out of here. We've been sitting here for an hour and he still like would not leave without paying for his coffee. And he put $2 down and we left. But I like, that was the only time I was like, I'm not paying for anything. Like, let's just go. This is bullshit. And you just, you you had to pay for your coffee, which I think is a nice window into uh, the type of person Bill Landis is. Yeah, I mean, he served me the coffee. I think he might have refilled it one time. I figured he might have get. I, I don't think whatever was on the plate. I don't think he put it there. So you know, he got a dollar out of it. Maybe I don't know. I always feel bad doing that stuff because people have hard jobs and our jobs a joke. So I try to be sympathetic about that when I when I can. But yeah, that was not a great experience. And but uh, you've I've written off IHOP to, completely. <laughs> I've gone there like three other times since then, and every time it's been terrible. So I will never go there again. You're done. You're done with IHOP. Done. I'm done with the International House of Pancakes slash Burgers. All right. Uh, second question from Sean P was: If there is an alternative schedule next year, for example, only Big Ten games, how do you think that affects Ohio State's playoff positioning? Ohio State's in a pretty good position right now um, with the way the current schedule stands um, with Oregon. I think they have a chance to win that football game on the road, and if they win that game, that's like a feather in the hat type of a thing. Um, And I don't know exactly what things would be like if there's only 10 or 9 games um, for all these teams to play, and maybe they just pick conference champions. I don't know. But like I think Ohio State is one of the teams that if they win the Big Ten, they're in. And granted, it has happened once in 2016 when Ohio State won. Wait, no, it happened. When did they win as a one-loss champ and were left out? 2018, right? Or 17. 2018. They were um, these Big seasons run together, guys. 2018. Yeah, one-loss Big Ten champ that didn't get in one time. But I think for the most part, um, aside from a blowout to a very inferior opponent, um, Ohio State should be in a situation where they're in a good spot. I think Ohio State... If it doesn't have to play the Oregon game, A, could sidestep a potential loss because that could be a loss. Um, and now puts itself in a position to win a conference where they're clearly the best team and then gets in. I, I, I don't know. Teams like Ohio State have the benefit of the doubt in the um, committee's eyes. I think that they subscribe to the talent matters point of view. And I don't necessarily think that it would be better or worse for them. I just think that they got to take care of business, which is the reality even when the schedule is full. So. I mean, I don't know if that's just a simplistic way of looking at it, but I think Ohio State um, is up and away the best team in the conference this year. If they win the Big Ten, maybe as a one-loss conference champion, even if they somehow lose a, a close game in the Big Ten and then win the Big Ten, I still think that they get in. Um, unless you think that a condensed schedule means that you can't lose, um, maybe it's easier to go undefeated if you have to play three less or four less games. But I think Ohio State really is in a good position either way. It is an interesting thing to ponder if if we do end up in a situation where schedules are, are regionalized or you only play in your league and then there is a playoff, presumably, and the criteria for getting in the playoff basically remains the same. 
if you're a team like Ohio State, you're positioned well because the Big Ten is good, and you're probably going to end up playing three ranked teams in that scenario, assuming there's also a conference championship game. You're going to play Penn State. You're going to play Michigan. You're going to probably play Wisconsin if you got to the Big Ten championship. Wherever it comes out of the West in that game is most likely going to be a ranked team, and maybe you, you sprinkle in another one or two top 25 teams depending on what that schedule looks like. That is a good enough schedule to get you in, provided that you do what you're supposed to do with it. Now, it's also, in theory, a more challenging schedule. But I, I, I'm not worried about Ohio State being impacted negatively like you said. What would be interesting is if you're a team like Clemson and the ACC just isn't very good. And you're in a situation like the ACC is Clemson and then like Carolina is probably going to have a nice year this year and, and like Pitt might be okay. But those teams are are not as good, anywhere near as good as Clemson, and I think are not anywhere near as good as the second, third, or fourth tier teams in the Big Ten. Now, I'm not saying like Clemson's not going to make the playoff if they change the schedule, but if, if anyone was going to worry about this kind of scenario, I think that's the team you'd look at first. Clearly, they're going to be talented enough to be in the playoff and compete for a national championship, and we'll get in probably anyway, no matter what it looks like. But they're not going to have a great schedule. And they really didn't have much of a schedule last year, and they still got in. But well, Clemson's a good example, Bill, because they play at Notre Dame in November. Yeah, but what, I'm saying, would they if if they went? Well, to they, this I'm kind saying, of thing, yeah, I'm saying that they would lose the one marquee game on their schedule, right? Um, that they might not have otherwise had. I was like adding to what you were saying because, yeah, like, they didn't have yeah. in my in my memory. Do they? They play South Carolina every year, but I don't know if they have a had a big non conference game last year or not. I Texas can't remember. A&M. Let me check. They play Texas. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, which I guess is is maybe it depends on just what this all looks like. If it's like oh, the thing that doesn't make much sense to me is the idea of like bus trips, and maybe I'm talking out of my ass here, but you're just as closely confined in a bus as you are on a plane. And I guess like you can get off a bus whenever you want. There are a few people on there, but in terms of close quarters, it's all close quarters. So I don't really know why one would be different than the other, unless you're just trying to save money. Maybe that's what it comes down to. Everyone's going to be cash strapped and chartering a plane's expensive. Um, I do think, too, Bill, that the number one thing here is whether or not a condensed schedule, meaning you go from 12 games to 9 or 10, if it just simply is easier for teams to go undefeated. Like if you removed Notre Dame off of their schedule and South Carolina off their schedule, those are two of the top five toughest games on their schedule. So if you remove those games, it's easier. So I wonder if the one-loss conference champion Ohio State – would be in a tougher situation to get into the playoff because more teams have a higher probability of going undefeated in that scenario. So it's not so much about whether or not you have enough to impress the committee because Clemson undefeated, whether they play 12 FCS teams or they play 12 undefeated conference champions, I think that an undefeated Clemson's getting in no matter what. It's just a matter of whether or not Ohio State and their schedule could lose a game to, like a say, like Nebraska or something by one win the Big Ten, and then they might have a harder time getting in if there's multiple teams from conferences that are undefeated when they otherwise would have had a loss. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I guess to get back to Sean's original point with the question, like if, if anything, if that happens, I don't think Ohio State's path gets any harder. If anything, it gets easier because you're just talking about removing the Oregon game and replacing it with a, another regional opponent or just playing fewer games altogether. Um, otherwise, the tough teams, the Penn State's, the Michigan's, potentially Michigan State, are probably still going to be in your schedule anyway. But you would be helped by not having to fly out in Oregon and play what I think is a pretty good Oregon team. Well, I think the one thing, too, is that Ohio State is in a very good situation because if they lose the Oregon game, it doesn't hinder them from winning a national championship. Mm -hmm. Because I think if they're only lost in the regular season, if things go according to plan, 
was Oregon that they're going to walk into the playoff, and it's kind of just a way to add a wild card to it. So I, I kind of look at it the opposite way of, um, you know, yes, they've got one less chance now of likely losing, but now, in the other hand, they have one less chance at what I think could be a get-out-of-jail-free card if they beat Oregon and then lose a weird game in the Big Ten. That Oregon um, win might actually carry a ton of weight when Ohio State would otherwise need it, need need a bump. So um, I do think that that game was kind of like a no-lose scenario unless they get blown out. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, again, though, the one thing that I'll always say is no matter what kind of situation we put Ohio State in, whether it's a condensed schedule in the coronavirus era or recruiting rankings, or, Ohio State is one of the best programs in the country, and they seem to – or they oh, they do get the benefit of the doubt most of the time. And the committee – Regardless of what the schedule looks like, we'll look at Ohio State and say this is one of the most talented teams in the country. And regardless of how tough their schedule is, I think that they will view them based on the merit of the way that they played. And like losing sleep over whether or not Ohio State's going to have a harder path to get in the playoff because of a potentially condensed schedule, I think is kind of a waste of time. I think Ohio State's always in the driver's seat. I agree. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus, and it doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just $1 per packet. That's a buck a packet for a 30-day supply, and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. For 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code AB at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter AB for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code AB. All right, next question uh, from Tim J. We got a couple about uh, about the juice, like involving the Juice Man, Jameson Williams, and, and this question. The Juice Man. The Juice Man. You drafted the Juice Man. Yeah, you know, draft what you know. Yeah, we yeah, we have uh, we have developmental picks in our fantasy football league in Ari. Every there's like four or five, I think, Ohio State writers in the league are people who are familiar with Ohio State, and like every Ohio State school position player got drafted. It was hilarious. Um. This question from Tim J is: There's going to be rotation uh, at receiver. He's talking about uh, Z and H are pretty obvious. Um, Z, I think, being Chris Olave and Jamison Williams. H being Garrett Wilson, Mookie Cooper, Jackson, Jackson Smith, and Jigba. He said, "Who would your guess be for the starting X receiver? He'd like to see Olave move to X, like McLaurin did in 2018, so that Jamison Williams can get on the field a little more at Z." Uh, I guess we can take that and sort of spin it this way like how do you think this is going to play out with the receiver rotation and what do you see as a potential role for a guy like uh jameson williams yeah this was tough because i remember i did the offensive projection for the depth chart back in january when we did them bill and you and i were kind of going back and forth a little bit about how to how to list it because it was hard because they're all going to be in a rotation. But like right now, we had X starter was Garrett Wilson with the backup Julian Fleming. Z, Chris Olave with backups, Jamison Williams, Jackson Smith, and the Jigba, and G. Scott. And then slot 
we had Jalen Gill as a starter and Mookie Cooper as the backup. And Jalen Gill has since transferred or put his name in the transfer portal. So, like, one of the things that we were debating, and this might be just nuts because I know that now we've got Garrett Wilson in the, in the H position potentially, which gets your tail wagon pretty good. But I always thought that, like, Chris Olave, who runs really crisp routes and is really fast and has great hands, would be the perfect player to start at H um, and replace uh, K.J. Hill. And that just might be me talking out of my ass, but... If you put Chris Olave in that position, keep Garrett Wilson at X, and then Jamison Williams and Jackson Smith and the Jigba, then G. Scott all um, rotating at Z, that that would make the most sense to me. And then, of course, you put Chris Olave, your best receiver on the team, in the position to catch the most passes on the roster with some of the easy underneath routes where he could use his athleticism to break plays. And, you know, he is one of the best downfield threats in the Big Ten, and I still think you could beat the team over the top from the slot. And that's the way I thought that it would pan out. But Garrett Wilson obviously changes that. So, you know, to me, I, I do think that they're going to get creative and they'll find a way to get Williams' speed on the field. But I don't know exactly the way it's going to look because we didn't really get a great look at how they were going to experiment with things in the spring, obviously, because it got canceled. I think both of these outside spots you're talking about are, are, are fairly interchangeable, and we saw that um, really over the last two years. Chris Olave can play anywhere, I think, and Garrett Wilson can play anywhere. I'm I'm a little less on the Alave playing like the true slot role only because I'm not sure of his short area quickness to to be um, super impactful in that role. I think he'd be, he'd be pretty good, but it, it makes more sense for me for someone like Garrett Wilson to be there, or maybe Jackson Smith and Jigba. Um, Chris Olave is, is fast and and has like the long speed that that scouts talk about and was was a sprinter in high school and a really good one and tracks a deep ball really well. I think he's best utilized out there, but you can put him anywhere. And, and the idea that you could put him anywhere, you could put Wilson anywhere, I think in eventually you'll be able to put Smith and Jigba anywhere gives you a lot of versatility. So so I'm not super concerned with like locking these guys into specific roles as, as I am with like just figuring out who the six best guys are. And and there was another question we got and sort of in that regard about the idea of, of are they actually going to play all of these young guys this year? Because I think fans overall and over the last couple of years and particularly at the end of Irvin Meyer's tenure were, were sort of up in arms a little bit about young guys just cooling on the bench while older guys who might not have been as talented were playing ahead of them. This doesn't look like a situation where that's going to happen because outside of Olave and Wilson, they don't really have anybody else established. So they, they brought in four really good freshman receivers and there is opening for all four of them to play if it went that way. Jalen Harris is still here. Elijah Gardner is still here. Cameron Babb, if he gets healthy, is here. C.J. Saunders might get um, an extra year of eligibility. But but it's wide open for all four of these young guys to find a spot to play. And, and I think they ultimately will. And, and it's going to be Olave Wilson and then the four freshmen who are part of the six-man rotation. And there's a lot of interchangeability there to just sort of make it all work. And, and Jamison Williams is involved in that. Now, I think he'll be blocked a little bit by Olave because Olave is your best – deep ball guy and i don't know jameson williams is crazy fast and we saw it with the his touchdown against miami ohio it's not just about that like how you track a ball route running um the ability to make contested catches all factors into whether or not you can be that guy too and olave does all that really well i'm not saying williams doesn't we just haven't had the opportunity to see a lot of it but he gets compared to ted ginn at least from a speed standpoint and it seems to be a fairly reasonable comparison because that kid can fly so i think they're going to get him on the field I'm i'm not worried about him not getting on the field but it might be curtailed a little bit just because you it's gonna be hard to take chris olave off the field I bet he's the fastest receiver on the team. I'd Williams. be surprised. I, he might be the fastest player on the team. Yeah. 
So in that in that just one sentence, I think that gives you all you really need to know about how much Ohio State was going to you know want to get him on the field because I think speed kills, man. Speed does kill. You should, yeah. So someday you and I will publish our text back and forth about <laughs> you telling me that the most important thing is speed and me trying to be a little more nuanced than that. In the end, you'll probably. And then everybody that. and everybody will see that the way you talk to me on the podcast is the way you talk to me through text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, this was a fun question, and I wanted to make sure we got it in on this episode from Brandon L. <clears throat> He gives us six names. He says, please rank the likelihood of these fellas being future head coaches at Ohio State from least to most likely. And the names are Mike Vrabel, Urban Meyer, Kenny Guyton, Luke Fickle, Matt Campbell, and Jeff Halfley. I have my list ranked least likely to most likely. I don't know if you do or not, um, but I can go with mine first, and then you can tell me whether or not you agree or disagree. Okay. Okay. Uh, least likely, I put Vrabel just because I think he's an NFL guy all the way. I just have a hard time seeing him ever coming back to college. Uh, ahead of him, I had Kenny Guyton, who's just super early in his coaching career, and maybe he's on the track to be a head coach, but he is he is years away from that at the moment. Fourth, I had Halfley because he was here for a year, and he was good when he was here. I don't think he's like the first number in the Rolodex that they have to make a coaching change in three, four, five, six, ten years or whatever. Um he doesn't have the ties to the region to Ohio State other than the one year he was here, at least like not that these other guys on the list have. So I had him fourth. Urban and I had third. And if you would have asked this question a year ago, I probably would have had him a little higher. But I said with time, I've I've grown I've fallen less or more out of love with the idea that Urban's gonna come back to coaching. Uh, but I still have him third on this list in terms of being Ohio State's next coach. Second, I had Matt Campbell, whose name came up when they were looking to to replace Urban. The first time or when we talked about guys who might eventually succeed Urban, um, a lot of ties to the state, recruits the area well, is a good coach, is done well at uh, Iowa State. He has the profile of somebody you might expect Ohio State to go after. And then number one, I had Luke Fickle because he's like the consummate Buckeye and I think is proving himself in his second chance of, of being a head coach to be a guy who knows what he's doing and knows how to run a program. We're very similar. Um, I viewed it. And this is my caveat, so you tell me if this is the way you thought of it. But I think that if Ryan Day is the head coach at Ohio State for 15 more years, then the entire list is going to be completely different. Yep. So I did it with the understanding or the viewpoint that – or the assumption that in the fake world that we're creating with the question that Ryan Day goes to the NFL in the next three or five years. Is that a fair assumption to make? Yeah. Because if it's in 15, then I think this list is completely different. So – in that case, I put Vrabel last because I don't think he's going to leave the NFL to coach at Ohio State. So we agree on that. Kenny Guyton is too early in his career um, in the next three or five years to be considered, so I had him five. Four, I had Fickle because I don't know enough time has passed since 2012 um, to move past that 2011 season. Um, and maybe that's just me um, – giving him too much uh, flack on that, but I don't know if it, he has to prove himself more, I think, before Ohio State fans want to take that leap of faith again because things did not go well. In a pretty crappy situation for him that was out of his control, but I don't know if it was the best look for him to take the job when he did because he's now viewed as the last person to have a losing season at Ohio State. Um, so, you know, right now, obviously, he's a hot candidate. He almost went to Michigan State. He's done really well at Cincinnati. He can recruit Ohio. He's the consummate Buckeye. Everything you said is true, but I think that given what Ohio State has done 
um, under Urban and now what they're doing with Ryan Day that, like, I don't know if he's the flashy type of person that they would want. Three, I put Matt Campbell because last year Iowa State sucked, and I don't know if the luster is going to come off of him. Um, two, I put Halfley because he's a young, charismatic guy who could talk his way into selling a ketchup popsicle to a woman wearing white gloves, which I stole from Tommy Boy. And I just don't know what things are going to be doing in, in in Boston College, but he seems to be recruiting Ohio. He got a commitment from Ohio last week over places like Michigan State, which, hat tip to you, Bill, you texted me about. Um, and I just think that like he kind of fits in the Ryan Day mold of young, really smart, well-liked, successful assistant at Ohio State that might fit the profile better. And then number one, I put Urban. Because as much as we love seeing the sand-kissed Urban Meyer and the Saint <laughs> or in the Florida um, lake life, just living the dream, you know, those T-shirts that say salt life on it, I don't know if this is a relatively new need, if, like, this would be the most natural place for him to jump back in and try to get another one. So I always thought that if Ryan Day left um, in the next uh, two or three years or three or five years, that Urban Meyer would be the first call that was made, and that's why he's the number one person on my list. And um, I think that's a really good question. And depending on the way that you want to frame the question in terms of timeline, I think that this changes my viewpoint a little bit. Because like, if you mean 15 years from now, then maybe Kenny Guyton is like the head coach at Purdue and just won nine games for the first. You know, like who knows? Uh, but right now, that's the way I view it. It's a funny, like, I love talking about the hypothetical that Urban would come back to Ohio State to coach. Um, like, I just, I have a really hard time, and like, it's a silly thing to talk about maybe admittedly, but I have a really hard time seeing Gene Smith doing that. Like, he hired Urban, home run. He hired Ryan Day in this scenario, because Ryan Day's going to the NFL, presumably after being very successful here, home run. And, like, he's going to go back to the well and bring Urban back instead of, like, going out and trying to find another home run hire. And it's not to say that Urban... There's no be. better coach that they could hire again than Urban Meyer right now. I mean, you don't know. That. I mean, I guess... I Based guess on so. the information we have right now, if Ryan Day were to leave right now to go to the Patriots, who would be the best coach available to coach this team? Bill Belichick. All right, can we just? <laughs> All right, podcast is over, guys. We're not in the re- we're not having a discussion anymore. And that's like, seriously. Bel- Belichick's no longer the coach of the of the Patriots. Uh, okay. No, I get what, I get what you're saying. Yes, yes. No, he it would be it would be Urban. But and the guy lives in Ohio, has won a national championship, is the reason why Ryan Day knows how to run this program, and is my in my opinion the best coach in Ohio State history, and is relatively young. If he's back in good health, and is yeah. ready, willing, and available where he lives to coach Ohio State football again. And let's be honest about one thing. Urban Meyer cares what people think about him. And I know that he's living the dream right now and he's on television and he's a charismatic guy that people love to watch on Fox. And he's down in Florida with no care in the world right now. But I bet you, I know it eats at him. I know for a fact that it eats at him that he left under the circumstances that he left. I think it kills him that he left um, the same year that the Zach Smith stuff happened, and I know that he cares what people think about him. And if given the opportunity to coach at Ohio State for four or five more years in his mid or upper 50s or early 60s, depending on the timeline, and he has a chance to win another national championship and change the way that people view him, not only at Ohio State and the place that he loves, but it's just in the total realm of college football's greatness, he's going to do it. I, I, yeah. think that if, if, I think that the thing would have to line up perfectly in terms of location, health, 
timing and all the stuff would have to be right. But under the guidelines on the way that I made this list, Urban Meyer is obviously the best candidate on this list and might be more motivated to coach at Ohio State again than people give it credit for right now because they see how tan he is, which is almost as tan as me. I think you might have just swayed me a little bit. That was a that was a pretty compelling argument. How about All that? Right. I'm not really good at swaying you. I think that's like the hardest thing that I can I do. I can't sway you ever usually when we're in a discussion. So I feel good about that. I think I'm going to change my list. I think I'm going to put I'm going to put Meyer one, and then I'll put Fickles two and Campbell three, Halfley four, Guyton Vrabel. I think I've, yeah, you've successfully knocked me off of my my stance. Is that the first freaking time in the history of our like relationship as friends that that's happened? Uh, it's definitely the first time I'm going to admit it happened. Whether or not it has actually happened, I don't know. I don't know that I can ever remember changing your mind about anything. All right. Well, you want to go <clears throat> go out on a high note? Then we'll we'll end the podcast there, and you can take a victory lap. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you're you're the host guy. You tell me what to do. We can either do that, or we can rank fast food French fries. Ra- let's rank fast food French fries. <laughs> okay. Because this is the thing that I'll never be able to change your list your mind over. <laughs> All right. Uh, we do top five or top three. Um, do you want to use the thing that made this a subject? <clears throat> if you want to, but I have other ones that I think should be in consideration. Okay, well, let me go back and find the French fry thing real quick. Okay, so there was a list on Twitter, and it said you can only pick three of these nine places. Number one, McDonald's. Well, number two, Arby's Curly Fries. Three, Taco Bell's Fries, which I've never eaten because it's Taco Bell. Four, Rallies, five Chick-fil-A, six Popeye, seven Wendy's, eight KFC, nine Burger King. And my picks were four, five, and nine. And the reason why I picked four, five, and nine, which were Rallies, Chick-fil-A, and Burger King, is because they're all distinctly different types of fries. But I want to change my mind. I want to remove Chick-fil-A waffle fries out of it, and I want to put McDonald's back in. Um, Mm. So I want McDonald's. Rallies in Burger King are out of those nine are the three that I would take, and I know people are went crazy over my Burger King take, um, but I will defend that after you add into like the other places that you might have, and that might change my mind too. I'm just going based on the list that created this discussion to begin with. I thought some others worth considering were Canes. Um, I think Canes has a nice French fry. Uh, White Castle, Culver's. And Dairy Queen, actually, I think, does does a decent fast food french fry. And that was not all included in this conversation either. But okay. if, I'm only, if I'm ranking my top three, and I, I sort of go in the, in the variety mold that you do, too, um, I would do Arby's one. I would do McDonald's two, but only if they're fresh. Because McDonald's fries can take a turn pretty quickly if they're not fresh. Um, and then three, I would do Checkers slash Rallies. Um, I would give strong consideration to Cane's. I like a crinkle cut fry. They're just pretty good. Culver's also has a good crinkle cut fry, but my top three is Arby's, McDonald's, with the caveat that they're fresh and checkers. Okay, I think crinkle cut fries are the worst type and the worst type of fry there is. Interesting. I, I just White Castle. I'm a large man who likes eating fast food, and I'm trying to change that about myself. Fat White Castle blows. There's no other way to put it. I, I think that the entire restaurant should be wiped off the face of the earth. Oh. It's and it's the only place in the fast food industry that I can't stand. Like I will like actively not eat it. And every other place on this list, Popeyes, whether or not you rank them number one or number nine, all of the things on this list are out, are edible. Um, and the one fast food place that I never go, not because I don't think it's good or it's just not up my alley, is Taco Bell. So I've never even eaten those fries, but. Burger King is very similar 
in fact, to Dairy Queen, which I thought was an interesting thing for you to to, to bring up. Because Burger King's fries are the thickest of the shoestring fries, mm-hmm. are salty as hell, and have a nice crunch, but also have a soft potatoey middle. And no other fry in fast food outside of Wendy's does that. And I really like that. So so Dairy Queen and Burger King, if you like Dairy Queen, I'm surprised you don't like Burger King because they're very similar to me. I and don't second dislike of all, Burger King. I just wouldn't, yeah. I don't I don't regard it as highly as you do. I mean, of the nine on this list, I think it's one of the top three. And I, I mean, in the in part of the reason why I made it is because I wanted to be distinctly different. And I think that Popeyes has tremendous fries too, but I think that they're very similar to Rallies, and Rallies have better. Like yeah, the, if, of the seasoned fries, can't I'm not going to put two different seasoned fries when one is better than the other. And McDonald's is just classic. I think they put sugar on them, and when they're fresh, they're amazing. And I like Wendy's fries too. But Wendy's go to shit faster than any of them. If you go to Wendy's and you put it in a bag and you get it to go in the drive-thru and you get like a, a a hamburger with Wendy's fries in it, if you don't eat the fries first, they're bad before your meal is done, even if they give them to you fresh. Yep. I think Wendy's sucks. So <laughs> to me, Wendy's has the best burger, but their fries suck. Burger King is the worst of the fast food chains, but they've got great fries, good breakfast, and the original chicken sandwich is amazing. And if on this list, Culver's has probably the best burger, but I think that's one step ahead of fast food. So for fast food, I'm going to say McDonald's, Checkers, and Burger King because Burger King is hated on so much for some reason. And I granted, I get that their menu isn't as good as McDonald's or as expansive as McDonald's. Um and I do think that if you are a big curly fry person, that Arby's deserves to be on this list. I just happen to not love curly fries. So, to me, I think Burger King belongs on this list, man. Change my mind with that little sign. <laughs> uh, I think I think it's reasonable to hold Burger King in your top five. Um, I think that would be a five at best for me. And I probably, if I sat down and made a top ten, it'd be closer to ten. But it would be on the, it would be in the top ten for sure. I'd so you're taking Wendy's over Burger King fries. No, I wouldn't have Wendy's in the top ten. I don't like Wendy's fries. Okay, and KFC wedges? I would probably put those over Burger Burger King, yeah. So now, before we go, why don't you rank your fries in order of like the way they're prepared? Ooh. Um, number one is waffle. Number two. But Chick-fil-A didn't make your top three then? Yeah. No, it didn't. But yeah, it didn't. Chick-fil-A, I think, would be number four for me. Um, but it is my preferred style of fry. But I am I am willing to step outside of that comfort zone and admit that the ones I have above it are, are taste better, even if it's not my preferred style. Okay. Um, ch- waffles, waffles one, curly is two, um, probably shoestring, and then crinkle cut. Now, do you think shoestring and seasoned are the same? Yeah, they're the same kind of fry. I think because I would say that shoestring fries. Are different than seasoned. If I, have so to make I would that say distinction, then I would put seasoned fries ahead of shoestring. Shoe okay, so I think it's seasoned shoestring, waffle, wedge, curly, crinkle. You you being anti crinkle makes me sad. I'm not. I mean, you put a bag of crinkle cut fries in front of me; they're going down fast. But I'm just saying, in in relation to the other ones that taste better. And then maybe this crinkle cut fries in general, like I like Cane's chicken fingers and I like Cane's, but I don't like love their fries. And here's one last fry take that I'll leave people with. And you tell me if I'm nuts. I like in and outs fries. 
Oh, God. I saw somebody on, it was either on Twitter or Instagram, said that In N Out fries taste like Yu Gi Oh cards. <laughs> okay, I don't know what that means, but I've never eaten Yu Gi Oh cards, but I, I like them. I, I think that they're. I think they're fresh. They taste good. And like yeah, I I, uh, I know people think they're terrible and I understand that that's a weird thing, which is why I didn't rank them, but I do like them. Wow, that might be your hottest food take ever is it in and out fries. You good. think so? They're think good. They're, you ate I them. I watched you eat a whole bag of them. They're I not think bad. They're good all the time. I don't think I actually don't I like the In-N-Out burger and if I'm going to In-N-Out I'm going to get fries with my burger, but yeah. I don't like their fries at all. You know what's a good one for next week if you want to write this down? Yep. What is the most lopsided restaurant from burger to fry ratio? Ooh. So best burger to terrible fries. Okay. And I think people would put In-N-Out number one on there because In-N-Out has an amazing fast food burger in its price range and their fries are admittedly not good to a lot of people. But I think Culver's belongs on that list too. All right. Well, don't spoil it, man. We'll get into okay. it next week. Um, All right. Thank you uh, to the six of you who kept listening to our Fry Talk. <laughs> we appreciate that. And everybody <laughs> else who listened at the beginning of the podcast when we are talking about interesting Ohio State football things, we thank you as well. Uh, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash 4-6. I have a story up, the one up Monday, about re-ranking Urban Meyer's recruiting classes, um, finding a formula to do that, and seeing where the 2017 class is tracking comparatively to, to his other classes. And I thought the results were kind of interesting, so I'll plug that. We want to take a look at that. Maybe we can talk about it next week, too. Um, and appreciate you guys sending in all the questions for this episode. If we didn't get to your question this week, uh, we'll try to get to it at a later podcast. Ari, anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Wendy's fries suck. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.